far away to you, Chris? A little further. A little further thought, than normal. I don't know. I thought when I listened to the Spider-Verse, I thought, hey, maybe you're sitting a little close to the microphone. So I present. thought this time I'd try a little distance. Sure. And also it gives you more space to talk about Gesticulate your- <laughs> wildly. <laughs> to gesticulate. Let me just get my intro ready. Oh, boy. I like it. Well, you know, Chris, now we're in the new paradigm whereby I do not multitask during your intro. I am undoubtedly more impressed than pretending to have listened and then. It's amazing what actual listening can do. Well, you know, when you listen to yourself not listening, so I think everyone would be a better listener. Like the only way this is ever changing for me, and I'm working on it, but the only way I would ever even work on it is by hearing myself talk too much in a podcast with you. I see what you said, yes. So otherwise I would never know. Right. I don't know why no one ever told me before. Uh, Yeah. Well, you say that like, Attempts have been made. No, no, no. I didn't mean to imply that. Uh, more than no matter what somebody else says, it always sounds better when you sort of believe it, feel it, hear it yourself. Hmm. That seems like an insult. It wasn't. I don't, I, let's leave it, it alone. Wasn't let's leave it alone me. and go right to your intro, which now I'm okay. I, we'll see. Gather round for full cast and crew brought to you by these co-hosts too, where a film be examined and understood to determine whether it be any good. (laughs) Is the movie art diversion or maybe both? And might it stunt or foster mankind's growth? Do not confuse our passion for any real stakes. Remember, these are but two schmucks hot takes. (laughs) That's a good one. I like it. Thanks. The only thing that would have been better is if you were in like a jester outfit with bells and you were doing that like one-legged hop thing. We talked about Donald Moffat having been a touchstone, uh, a jester in yes. um, As You Like It or whichever. Uh, yeah. Do you think yeah, he I did the hop? Been, I'm sure he did some sort of hop, but they might not have had him in the whole, um, what are they called? The motley, the hat and, and staff and stuff like that. If I was cast as a jester, I would come in and I'd be like, guys, uh, it's been done. I want to take this in a new direction. <laughs> Okay. My thing is going to be stillness. It's I'm going to do French. an opposite take. Yeah. Well, I have watched a lot of French movies. I was going to, I'll save that for the rave. One last thing about jesters. Did you know that there's a uh, Marvel Comics- <laughs> That's the Comics, first time anyone's ever said that yeah. sentence. <laughs> Marvel Comics uh, villain called the jester, who's a failed actor who got so bitter, he turned into a supervillain. Is that true? Yeah. Huh. And he's a failed actor. That's the origin story? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, that was a great intro. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed Um, We're here today to discuss The Last Unicorn. The Last Unicorn is a 1982 animated feature, which tells the story of a brave unicorn and a magician who fight an evil king obsessed with attempting to capture the world's unicorns. This is a Rankin-Bass production, which means something to people of my age, not Mm -hmm. yours, since you are a young millennial, Chris. (laughs) Um, Rankin and Bass, uh, Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr. had a production entity, the title page of which transports people of my generation back to 1970s television viewing, uh, Rudolph, uh, Heat Miser, any of that kind of stop motion doll-like animation. But it's really not those guys, which I sort of find interesting. This was a company predicated upon the actual work being done by other companies, in this case, Japanese companies. Mm Mm-hmm which is, is kind of interesting for origin and backstory of The Last Unicorn. If you're a person of a certain age, you probably grew up watching this movie. I did not grow up watching this movie, although I vaguely remember maybe watching it in high school uh, through some smoky clouds. <laughs> we might have watched it for that sort of experience because mm-hmm. it is it is psychedelic in places. Yeah. 
Like, I, I would say that it would appeal to the cannabinoid mind, let's say. <laughs> yes, same producers and same screenwriter, Peter S. Beagle himself, mm. did the famous Lord of the Rings cartoons. Yeah. They're kind of cartoons. I think they have some live action element. A little backstory, the reason why we're doing this is, is twofold. On the one hand, we've been doing the Oscar movies for seven weeks now. And Chris, I've had enough. And the viewers have had enough. One of our super listeners pointed out to me, you know, I can hear about these movies that everyone's talking about everywhere. Yeah. When I listen to full cast and crew, I want to hear you guys have some fun with some movies that I may have watched, that I may not have watched, that aren't necessarily the ones that are playing in my local Omniplex. Point well taken. I watched this a couple weeks ago because my daughter was homesick, and if you have a seven-year-old daughter, you're looking for something in the unicorn space, okay? <laughs> Having exhausted a live-action unicorn called The Littlest Unicorn, I think, which is a British live-action film starring George Hamilton and many other strange actors, which has a bizarre charm, even though it's not what I would or anyone would call good. Well, as I say, like George Hamilton himself. Yeah. So anyway, we watched this, and uh, my daughter loved it. And I thought, I mean, it's scary in places. It's definitely got some adult themes in places. It's deep in a weird way. But she loved it. Oh, loved so it. Glad. She made me a drawing this morning, which I should have brought in. No, because I told her that we were going to talk about The Last Unicorn. And um, by my uh, bedside table, she left a custom Last Unicorn drawing that would like had a space in the middle, like for my notes about the movie. Yeah. So that's where it started. And then I watched it again last night because when I watched it with her, I was sort of in the seven-year-old mindset and I wanted to watch it last night in an adult mindset. Right. Uh, and I got more out of it the second time than I did the first. Yeah. Um, I, I, you hadn't read the book. Did you know? Well, <laughs> well, no, well no. I mean, as, you, as anyone. Had you heard of it? Well, apparently of, it's very well known. Well, that's what I was about to say. Like when when uh, it came up as a suggestion, I had two sort of you points You promised of that you were going to read the book. Which I did do. You I read did, the whole book? Yes. It's like a dense fantasy novel, apparently. It's not that dense. <laughs> it's a, it's it's not, so I had two points of reference. One was that I had heard about that it existed, and everybody who would talk about it would also say, like, it's based on this book, which is a sort of lesser, not le lesser known. Like, mm -hmm. it's not it's not quite the— um, It's not quite the Lord of the Rings. It's not quite the Lord of the Rings in this sort of the canon, but, but the people who do know it love it. Right. And that amongst the cognoscenti of dorks— mm. uh, Within the fantasy community, it's considered uh, super high. In fact, I, there's a uh, one list that calls it the fifth best fantasy book ever written. Really? Yeah, beaten out only by like two two Tolkien things and some other crap. Some other crap. Uh, um, but anyway, but, but and is I it a good read? Uh, What's your review of the book? So my review of the book was actually, I found the book profound. And profound. profoundly moving. Really? Yes, I was <laughs> shocked because, uh, you know, was, I think I've sort of kidded. I was laughing to think of you. Profoundly moved. Yes, Why? Because it's about the search for identity. It's about belonging. It's about being a misfit in a world that doesn't understand you, Chris. A little bit, but I think that's very well-worn territory these yeah. days. And I think in a very um, trite way. And I, as I've, I think I've sort of alluded to, the sort of current love of YA fiction, I find a little bit off-putting because I think mm -hmm. it's even by usually, adults, by adults, and yeah. even by, by YA tweens, even by YAs, like it's most of it, I find pretty trite and uh, simplistic. Whereas this book, I actually found surprisingly complicated and thorny. Mm. It's written in an 
most abstract way in places. Like it really does not do a lot of explanation or world building. What it does, it puts you in somewhere and he's actually a beautiful writer. Hmm. The journey that that the unicorn and everybody goes through is sort of, there are surprising wrinkles, a lot of which make it into the movie. So then actually seeing the adaptation, the cartoon blew my mind. So I, I was sort of blown away. My other touchstone was this is the first movie that my brother ever saw. And he he was like so frightened by the Red Bull. He, he had my mother like they left the movie theater. And then in researching it, I found out that's actually most people reaction to the movie is to remember it with terror as opposed to love. Well, that's a good segue. I wanted to read you just a few comments, which I haven't cleared with the people who left them on my personal Facebook page. So I'm just going to read them anonymously. But uh, there were some, there's a, this is the cross section of comments when I posted an image, a striking image from the movie of the, the tidal wave of unicorns at the end that subsumes the Red Bull. And I, the range of comments were some people saying, that's one of my favorite movies. Uh, someone said, it haunted my childhood and continues to haunt me every five years when I rewatch it. Someone else said, one of my favorite movies. Someone in all caps, I fucking love that movie. Um, someone said, it messed me up for Red Bull, though. <laughs> someone else said, it was a bizarre movie, haunted my childhood. Um, so people were polarized by it, but... I think you can't watch it and be unmoved by it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious now, I I actually might read the source material based on your review because that sounds like the kind of thing I would be interested in. Um, Yeah. Okay, so a couple just scene setting greatly weird and bizarre things about this movie. Number one, the voice cast is uniformly excellent. Yeah. But but includes some bizarre participants (laughs) that you're sort of like, what is going on? I guess I would, and I love this guy, but I'm going to have to leave him out of the uniformly exiting category because he's the one person in the movie who's a little stiff. And that's Jeff Bridges <laughs> as Prince Lear. He's like, just in a different movie than everyone else, or maybe he was just too young in 1982. I don't I know what's going on. I'll tell you what, though. His first line did sound like he <laughs> delivered it as a proto-Lebowski because they come up to the castle and they like invite it up and Christopher Lee says something. And then they're like, this is my son, Prince Lear. And he's like, hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> Hi, glad to meet you. Yeah, he was sort of like, I guess, 82. You know how, like, I think we've talked about before where it can be 1982, but really culturally we're still in, like, the 70s? Yes. I think that's part of the case here. Yep. Um, I did want to play one funny scene. I'm, I'm, we're not playing scenes chronologically here, but since we're talking about his vocal performance in this movie and also the bizarreness of his character, yeah. um, I wanted to play this hilarious scene uh, in which Prince Lear... Um, I'm pretty sure, confesses his love for a horse. We came here seeking unicorns, and we have possibly found them at last. I used to have a dream over and over about standing at my window in the middle of the night and seeing the bull, the red bull. Yes, driving unicorns into the sea. It was no dream. Haggard has them all now, drifting in and out on the tides for his delight. All but one. That one is the Lady Amalthea. Unicorn, mermaid, sorceress. No name you would give her would surprise or frighten me. I love whom I love. Well, that's a very nice sentiment. But when I change her back into her true self... I love whom I love. I heard what you said. I will go no further. There's no choice. We have to go on. That's Jeff Bridges as Prince Lear. Uh, Mia Farrow as the unicorn whose yeah. voiceover work is alternately brilliant, amazing, and bizarre and off-putting, I found. But yeah. 
Um, but she does a good job embodying the ethereal, conflicted nature. If a little lacking in agency, to use a 2019 term, she's a little breathlessly sort of swept along by events. Although, critically, and, and in a way that I love, you know, the prince, Charming Prince doesn't save the day in this movie. She does. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's some, some elements of that are a little bit more nuanced in the book. Yeah. Like, it does make a little bit more sense. You know, I, I read, like I said, an, an AV club, somebody wrote an essay about how it terrifies, yeah. you know, and so... And it's not a particularly good essay, I have, to, I have to admit. It's a little bit glib, as most cultural. Well, thanks. Principles. When I wrote it, I thought it was quite <laughs> brilliant, but. But one of the good things, it, it was interesting because he is somebody who had only seen the uh, the movie and the cartoon, but hadn't read the book. And he talks about certain things and about, like, why does she start forgetting who she is? Yeah. Like, dumb, you know, make some joke about, like, difference mm-hmm. between humans. And yet in the book, that is a thing of, of like the mysticism of that transformation and of the whole book has to do with people not being able to see unicorns anymore, not yeah. being able to see the magic around them. And so her transformation into a human, that's a process that starts and humanity is yeah. sort of- Well, uh, she says that right away once she's transformed into a human. She says, I can feel this body yeah. dying around me. That's part of, th- those parts of the movie are are amazing and deep and profound. Like, yeah. That's why when I was watching it sort of as an adult- last night and paying attention to what the themes were, I was really impressed with how much stuff like that was brought up. And also, and these these, these things you probably will tell me probably come directly from the book. I was struck also by a line when she escapes from uh, Mama Fortuna's circus and she's being chased by the, the I think it's, it's not the bull, she's being chased by the weird crow. The harpy. The harpy. And uh, Schmendrick is like, run, run. And she goes, no, you must never run from anything immortal. It attracts their attention. I think it's like deep lines yes. like that that are, could be stoner lines, I guess. <laughs> um, like when I read it now. So for the listeners, the unicorn gets caught, put into this carnival where there are all of these like fake things that are made to look like monsters. The only other real monster is this harpy. When she breaks out, the woman who runs the carnival this sort of like nihilistic dead end grin as she allows Harpy yeah. to destroy her. Uh, it was frightening both in the book, but I but that was one of those things that I thought they really captured super well in the um, in the movie. Well, and also the 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 Mama um, Fortuna Mama Fortuna's headgear of the sort of like empty tree trunk. I mean, th- the, that's amazing. I don't want the bird nesting the bird nesting in it. <laughs> um, but also in that scene, so we had Alan Arkin as Schmendrick, whose voice I also didn't recognize at first. Yeah. Um, I think of Alan Arkin as much older in 1982, 1983 than he sounds in this movie. Then, as I was reading about the movie, I thought, oh, that's why. But then I dug a little deeper, and it's not why. <laughs> that's what's known as the explanation. That's known as the conclusion prior to the explanation. I see. Yes. Now I'm going to give you the explanation so that you understand the conclusion. I look, I'm getting meta as I approach 50, Chris. Well, listen, it worked because now I am now so you're, much now more you're excited whole, you know, for right. that conclusion. So when the movie first came out on DVD in 2004, it was apparently made from a poor quality master and the audio was sped up a little bit just because it was a poor quality mm-hmm. master, I mm-hmm. guess. And when they when they converted it to digital or to the DVD release, they had it was like 2% sped up. So the voices were supposedly a little faster than they normally were. But then I realized, no, what we're watching, or at least what I was watching on Amazon Prime, was from a 2015 re-release of the movie. So yes, the journey of the unicorn, the coming together of a band of rogues and misfits to accomplish a task, um, and an incredible cast of very accomplished, 
act legacy actors, um, you know, Broadway people. I mean, everybody from, as we said, the aforementioned Alan Arkin and Jeff Bridges to Mia Farrow to Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, Keenan Wynn, Rene Auberjonois, uh, Don Messick, Jack Lester. And I'm not going to leave out the weirdest, <laughs> strangest moment, um, which I'm going to try and find right now, which is Robert Klein plays a butterfly. butterfly. And this butterfly, for some reason, in whatever time frame we're in here in this film, which I is we're certainly not in the 80s or the 70s, right? Yeah. Um, we are in, I don't know, ethereal Arthurian times? Peter Pan times? Where, where are we? Of, I don't quite know. And, and again, Where are we in the book? Well, in the book, it's also sort of unclear. It's this fantasy world where there are knights and castles and kings okay. and stuff, but there was mention of somebody reading a magazine at one point. A magazine? Yeah. There was somebody <laughs> at one Ruin point. Ruin Weekly. And I know this actually made it because I was surprised to hear this was Who actually- Who reads a magazine? Thing. There's a scene where a prince <laughs> and a princess are going through some ritual where they try to attract the unicorn. The princess is doing her part of the ritual and the prince is sort of not into it. And it just does say specifically, like he sat there leafing through a magazine. Interesting. And then later, Captain Cully- Yeah. When they sit down. Sort of the real life version of Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. When they sit down by the fire and he offers them food, he says, have a taco. What? That's not only in the book, that made it into the movie too. Oh yeah, that's true. That is in the movie. And again, in that same AV Club article, the guy's like, isn't this movie crazy? He says, have a taco. It's from the book. You are supposed to keep this mythical world and the magic close to, to not make that bifurcation so strict, which is one of the themes. Another bifurcation they didn't want to make was to keep Tin Pan Alley and other <laughs> song classics out of the mouth of the butterfly voiced by Robert Klein. How far would I travel yet to be where you are? Clay lies still, but blood's a rover. Red Rover, Red Rover, let Charlie come over. You come home, Bill Bailey. You come home, my wild Irish rose. I mean, it goes on for another minute yeah. and a half. Someone actually cataloged every reference the butterfly makes oh, wow. and posted it on a thread. So for the curious, you can do the, if you just Google butterfly references in The Last Unicorn, uh -huh. you will get a sourced listing of Shakespeare, Hoagie Carmichael songs, Tin Pan Alley, whatever. I mean, it's the weirdest. Yeah. I, I presume that's not in the book. Uh, actually, yes. Yes, there is. And a lot, again, because you know, Peter Beagle did the, uh, this was his first screenplay, I believe, but he did the screenplay for this as well. So he, I think he made a point of keeping uh, <laughs> keeping as much of the work that he already did. Wow. It sets up the world. It does say at some point, you know, butterflies are, have no minds of their own. They just sort of pick up That's what true. they've heard. So apparently he's been hanging around Tin Pan Alley <laughs> and- uh, He's probably hanging around Kenneth Wynn, Paul Freese, and Brother Theodore. Uh, all the- uh, well, We're going to get to Brother Theodore. <laughs> I don't know if you know me, Chris, at all, but Brother Theodore we, is met. a big part of my childhood. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Not like he babysat for me or anything. No, Don't get too excited. <laughs> but I'm just saying that uh, as part of my comedic upbringing, Brother Theater was a very important part. We'll get to that later. The voiced talents are fantastic in this for an animated film. Yes. You spend the most time with Mia Farrow and Alan Arkin and Tammy Grimes, mm -hmm. who I guess is some sort of Broadway legend. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with her? No. 
This might be why you don't get a lot of <laughs> jobs that you go for. I don't give those Broadway legends their due. I don't even know the due. legends. Yeah. That could be I mean, look at, her, look at her up. Look her up. I did. Slim, pixie-like, two-time Tony Award winner. And you don't even know who she is. Well, I mean, I do now from yeah, having read exactly what you did, but... Yeah, but shouldn't you know the history of the medium in which you desire to succeed? I don't need the past. I'm looking towards the future. Oh, I think this is now why, now I understand why you were like letting Mahershala Ali off the hook when he didn't do the research on the Donald (laughs) Shirley character. And you're like, I don't think it's the responsibility (laughs) of the actor necessarily. Anyway, she's fantastic as Molly grew. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows Tammy Grimes, so. Uh, Yeah, like from her role in Bus Stop. Sure. (laughs) Robert Klein is the butterfly. <laughs> um, but man, he is committed. He is fully yeah. committed. I kept thinking in a way that I don't think when I watch contemporary animation of the performances in the booth while they were recording this because they're so into it. Yeah. Um, and of course, given the way animation was done, they this is one of the things that's interesting about the Rankin-Bass model. And, and there's some, you can read about this if you if you dig into the company and how they did what they did. But it really is a twofold experience in terms of producing a piece of entertainment. Because the Rankin-Bass portion included the producing and recording of the voice talent Mm -hmm. and the script. And then the animation was handled by Japanese animation companies for all of their films. Um, And an interesting side note on this film is that the animators who worked on The Last Unicorn became the people who founded legendary Japanese animation studio Ghibli with Miyazaki. Yes, and I think when you look at the backgrounds and the character designs in this movie, it is so Miyazaki. It's so Studio Ghibli before yeah. that was really a thing. So the voice talent is amazing and and kind of old school theatrical Broadway and Hollywood, right? That's it's a right. mix of those things. <laughs> That's what I say. Those guys, like, just looking at their IMDb pages, oh like, they seem like vaudevillians. Paul then, Fries, like, yep. this guy plays three characters, Keenan Wynn. Christopher Lee as King Haggard, Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Um, all fully committed, all great, and all embodied brilliantly by the character design. Mm-hmm. The second thing that's both great in places and bizarre, and when I first saw the movie, I was like, what? <laughs> um, that the songs are by Jimmy Webb, who is a legendary singer-songwriter. Uh, he wrote Wichita Lineman. Oh, okay. Do you know that song? I've heard of it, yeah. This is the Glenn Campbell version. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire So that is a great song. Yeah. And I think you can hear in some of the changes in that song Mm -hmm. how 
unexpected the chord changes can be in a Jimmy Webb song. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. So whether we've had a music background or not, we're all familiar with the idea of major keys and minor keys. Major keys being those happy keys and minor keys evoking sadness. What makes a key? Uh, Essentially in Western music, a key is based on seven notes, seven diatonic notes. And however you play those, that's that can evoke a major sense, a minor sense, and there are some other vibes in there too. Each major key has a minor equivalent. So if we look at all the white keys on a piano and we play just those, that would be either C major or A minor. So C major has a minor equivalent of A minor. So if we look at the Glenn Campbell song here that uh, Jason is referring to, it's in F major. So the minor equivalent would be D minor, which according to Spinal Tap is the saddest of all keys. Instead of going to D minor to maybe evoke some sadness or some change, Jimmy Webb goes to D major, which is a nice little out there thing. It's something unexpected. It evokes a different type of feeling. And we see this a lot in Jimmy Webb songs. The Beatles did this as well, really getting outside of the typical harmonic uh, guidelines, if you will. And Jimmy Webb takes that and goes a little further with it. Anyway, there's your uh, music theory lesson for the day. The first time I heard the songs, I sort of thought like, oh, okay, this is like some dated, slightly cheesy 70s singer-songwriter, which is not necessarily helped. I mean, the songs are played by America. Right. I'm a huge America fan because I love A Horse With No Name. <laughs> I love Ventura Highway. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't, I know I'd heard that there was a band America and I couldn't think of what their songs were, but then I did think The Horse With No Name, which a song which I do know, which obviously the person who does The Horse With No Name is going to do The Last Unicorn. Ventura Highway is incredible. Which one is that? Matt, play us a little Ventura Highway, please. Ventura Highway in the sunshine where the days are longer What's funny is in the credits, when you watch the credits for The Last Unicorn, it says songs by Jimmy Webb, knowing of Jimmy Webb. It's like, what? Uh Uh-huh. That is not a fit, but it was until it wasn't. There's a song at the end that I, uh, her song at the end and the the Jeff Bridges song at the end are unfortunately pretty terrible. (laughs) Um, But there are two great songs. We'll play a little of them in in a moment. But then it says, songs by Jimmy Webb, and it says, performed by America. But the word America is in quotation marks. Why do you think they did that? Um, did you notice I that? I, don't, I didn't notice that, but I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that if you were doing the credits for a film and you were screening them, some executive must have said, <laughs> songs by America. What do you mean? Like everyone yeah. sings, like the whole population of America. <laughs> I didn't sing on this. What does that mean? Yeah. You, no one will know what that means. Put it in quotes. Uh, I like your explanation, of course. Like you said, songs by it's like, so America. put it in quotes, which is actually much more confusing. <laughs> much more because, confusing. Because you see it, like, <clears throat> Songs by America, could that, obviously, it wasn't all of America. Yeah. Ah, they must be referring to the band. That reasoning is a hell of a lot easier than, than getting stuck on. Why is it in quotes? That's the only thing I could think of. Full Casting Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76 and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. 
liked the duet between the two of them. I read a little bit of trivia that Jeff Bridges did actually sing on it. And I think Mia Farrow was- She was replaced. Just for that, she sang her solo song. Does she have the one where she's like, I'm a woman, that one? Yeah, I think right. Isn't it like- Let's let's start from the beginning here. I want to play you a little of what I think is a very good song, um, which is the theme. When the last eagle flies over the last crumbling mountain and the last flight falls at the last dusty fountain in the shadow of the forest, though she may be old and worn. I'm all in, man. I really... It's great. Like you said, I'm not a music guy, but even I was taken with that hook. And you can hear a little bit of, I think, that Jimmy Webb kind of slightly off chords a little bit, like mm-hmm. or unexpected. I don't really know how to... Des- I'm not musical enough to describe what that thing is. It's not atonal, but it's it's unexpected. I think that's the best word for it. Yeah. So that's the theme, which I loved. Yeah. Beautiful um, song. I also love, there's a second song that I really like a lot too. Oh, Man's Road. You know that song? Which one was that? This one. Now this is, you can only get the soundtrack uh, apparently in a German CD. <laughs> das Leiter Einhorn. <laughs> it's a little less magical. They're way ahead of us. You yeah. can't do, you can't do like. There's no magic there's in no Germany. There's no magic in German. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then they have the, her weird song, which, which I guess say, now you're she does me, sing. That's now that I'm a her? woman, she Wait, does that, sing. She that. does sing that. Yeah, but she doesn't sing during the duet. Okay, here's a little of that. There you have it. There you have it. Now that I'm a woman, everything is strange. Yeah. I don't know. I, I alternately like that and just, the, it's just the vocal performance that throws me off, but I love the changes. I think at this point, because I enjoy, I finished the book and then watched the movie and yeah. I was sort of so into it. Yeah. Like I had so much goodwill yeah. that like, as soon as the first song comes on, I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Give me another. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> I was looking at every leaf, listening to every chain, and, th- and thinking that there was like some meaning in there. One of the things that I, I like about- Jeff Bridges is a musician. Like, yeah. He, he's a legitimate musician, which is why his singing is so strange and foreign to me. Well, to this. me, it seemed like it was so earnest, and maybe they were playing up the fact that he's like a kid who's like never talked 
To a woman? To a woman before. Because he'd been living in a cave with an old man who's not his father? Yeah, in the castle. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, you, everybody think the life of a prince is great. Yeah. Like, oh, no. Lear found no, out differently. Oh, no, no. You, you don't know yet how. And it was the fact that he's like writing poetry, like the earnestness of both of them made the kind of whatever you could say about whether the singing was good or bad, at least. Yeah. To me, that, that, that seemed like a choice. Like it was a nice layer of their unschooledness. You know what's another cool thing about the the way magic is treated in the film? I loved when uh, she's, I believe, having the the thing with the harpy after the escape from uh, Mama Fortuna's traveling circus, and she says to Schmendrick of herself, the unicorn, and the harpy <clears throat> that we're both sides of the same magic. Like that concept that magic has both an uncontrollable nature because when Schmendrick tries to do some of the things that he does, he basically just says, magic, do as you will. Mm -hmm. And things occur. This idea that as humans, we try to control something which isn't really in our power to control and in attempting to do so are rendered as foolish and unconnected to the natural world as we are. Mm -hmm. That's one of the great messages of the movie to me is not only just the inability to see unicorns, also the sort of um, environmental message, I think, throughout that's, you know, uh, you could you could extrapolate a metaphor that the beautiful magical creatures have been driven off the earth and no one has seen them because humans have taken over and despoiled nature. Right. Right. In, in a desire to exert mastery. Exactly. It's made it like that they all fucked off. Yeah. Uh, which I think also goes as far to the way they treat Lear and his thought of himself as a hero, his desire to love uh, Almathea, yes. that there is something about the implication. And again, or a un- horse. Or <laughs> doing it. Again, this is for children, so it doesn't go. But the idea of romantic love and the the element of possession that that implies, hmm. uh, I think it was dealt with well in the film. Because, you know, not that much deeper in the book, but they explicate a little bit more. And you have that... And one of the great things about this is it's so concerned with myth and mythology, including the Robin Hood versus Captain Cully, the kind of hero Lear wants to be versus how he is. And even they say like, you know, um, one of the, uh, you can't have a happy ending until you sort of get all the way to it. Uh, Or rather you can't end the story in the middle. You have to get to the happy ending. Uh, All of that is, I think, just, there's something very smart and also kind of 60s, because I think that's when it was- about sort of taking away the illusions of the stories we tell each other. And yet it does a good job of still retaining some of the the beauty and the magic in it, mm-hmm. but saying that that it becomes that much deeper if there is some sort of real consciousness and suffering uh, that that sort of goes that goes into that romance. And I, and ultimately what the poor unicorn is left with, um, I don't think they have it so much in the in the movie, but it's in the book. You know, she tries, she finds herself no longer able to relate kind of to the other unicorns because she has been human <laughs> right, yeah. and retains it. That's a it. deep part. So she's very happy. Like, yeah, I'm glad I set everybody free. Yeah. I wouldn't change for the world. But, it's like, but boy, I can't go back to this time of innocence. Yeah, it's actually a good part. Um, he, he, he sort of is, Schmendrick is apologizing to her for having introduced her to regret and she basically says, no, it's okay, because if you hadn't introduced me to regret, I wouldn't have known love. Yeah. Um, 
However, as part of the strangely adult themes, I wanted to play you this clip where um, Schmendrick is me tooed by a tree. <laughs> Oh, what have I done? Always, always faithfulness beyond any man's deserving. I will keep the color of your eyes when no other in the world remembers your name. There is no immortality but a tree's love. Oh, God, I'm engaged with Douglas Fir. Help, unicorn, where are you? Oh, God, I'm engaged with Douglas Fir is one of the great lines. I don't know if that's in the book. No. Paul Fries, the indispensable Paul Fries as the voice of the tree. And what's happening is Schmendrick has been tied to a tree by the faux Peter Pan. Not Peter Pan. I keep saying Peter Pan. Eh, Who is it? Robin Hood. Robin Hood. The faux Peter Peter Hood. (laughs) And so so Schmendrick tries some magic and the tree turns into a sort of very horrifyingly libidinous, libidinous um, zaftig with huge breasts that he is pinned between and sort yeah. of a like old school um, like sound effects, probably like two balloons rubbing together in the mic. <laughs> right? uh, and Paul Fries, who just has done so many voices and so many things. Uh, I'm fascinated to learn more about this guy. Yeah. Paul Fries's IMDb page goes from 1942 to 1987. To 1987. Jeez. And even though that's not really that long, he has 357 credits in that time. Yeah. Um, and he's he does yeoman work in this movie. He's he's Mabrook, mm-hmm. um, who is the uh, who's Mabrook again? The court magician. Oh, the court that magician who replaces. He replaces, yeah. And also the bizarre pirate one-legged cat. <laughs> I love that cat. <laughs> Going back to Mama Leone's, Mama Leone's Italian restaurant. <laughs> hey, this is Matt the Engineer again. So Mama Leone's was an actual restaurant in Midtown Manhattan, kind of in the theater district that had been there for decades, closed in the 90s. I remember going there as a kid and they had the waiter walking around playing violin. I remember him trying to play tunes of the day, some really old gentlemen. You know, obviously whenever you're young, everybody's really old looking, but this guy was old and he was playing some Eurythmic song that was popular back then. So that uh, stuck with me. And we also may remember Mama Leone from the Billy Joel song, Move It Out, but that wasn't about the restaurant. Mama, what's her name? Fortuna. Mama Fortuna. Um, Mama Fortuna, brilliantly played by Angela Lansbury. The, I mean, talk about a pro. Somebody in the office today asked me, is Angela Lansbury still alive? Yes. Yes. The answer she's is yes. Die. She's 92 and she's in pre-production on a film, <laughs> which is, which is amazing at 92, Chris. Yeah. Is that because as an actor you want to, or you have to? I, She's got to have murder. She wrote money. Oh like, my there's god! No, there's got to be. There's dump no has to for her. I mean, there might be a have to in the sense of like you know looking at herself hatefully in the mirror, like oh my god, I need approbation, uh, and then <laughs> needing the the kind of uh, love that you can only get from the sound of applause from a live audience, like we all do. Indeed. But certainly not financially. She's a force of nature. More power to her. Murder. She wrote. Anyway, in the Mommy Fortuna. Is it Mommy Fortuna or Mama Fortuna? I think it's Mama. It's both. In the credits, she's called Mommy Fortuna. Oh, is that right? Okay. It's in the credits, but she's referred to as Mama Fortuna by the character I want to now jump into, which is Ruck. Yeah. Voiced by 
Brother Theodore. Now, if you grew up, as I did, worshiping and obsessively watching David Letterman in the 80s, you knew Brother Theodore for his frequent appearances on the show as a strange kind of um, comic relief that Dave had a deep appreciation for. Now, Brother Theodore himself is a pretty fascinating guy who, if somebody hasn't made a documentary about the life of Brother Theodore, perhaps we should, because he is one of these only in Hollywood characters who has been described as Boris Karloff, Salvador Dali, Nijinsky, and Red Skelton simultaneously. <laughs> and he was a German-born actor and comedian um, who was kind of known for these crazy monologues, which he called stand-up tragedy, according to his <laughs> IMDb page, I mean, his Wikipedia page. And he had this weird career in New York, like in the 60s and 70s and through the 80s, where he would have these stage shows where he would rant and rave. And he'd go on Letterman and do these brilliant segments with Dave. And in the early years for Letterman, there was such a surreal tone to the show because it was, you know, you're on at 12.30 before right. he became Mr. 11.30. So, so much of the comedy was so bizarre and surreal. And he was the embodiment of that. And you could just tell if you were a Dave fan when he was really engaged and having fun and his laughter when he was really appreciating what was going on. And Brother Theodore was a guy who always brought that out in him. Uh-huh. Here's a little of him on Dave. I just want to cue this up the right. You might have to cut this back in. This is an appearance from 1985 where he's talking about how he's going to stage a coup. You have uh, feelings about the upcoming election? Definitely. Yeah? I feel very strongly, and I'm not joking, that what this country needs is a dictator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel the time is ripe and the place congenial. And I'm ready. I will be strict, but just. Heads will roll. And corpses will swing from every lamppost. Yeah, yeah. You see, evil that fails is evil. Right. But evil that succeeds is good. Right. And I will be good. Ladies and gentlemen, you see here the next or the first dictator of these United States. Thank you. Does this answer your question? Sure. Are you, you, you're planning on mounting some, some form of a coup then? The coup is well in preparation. Well, right it is now. in preparation right now. When yes, it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be the host and we'll sit right here no. and you will sit here no. on the floor. No. This will be no, just no. a token no. of the coup. <laughs> Things ain't that bad yet. No. Hey. <laughs> Are you, you look like you're using a hot comb now. Have you? <laughs> so Dave's making fun of Brother Theodore's signature hair, which is flying all over the place. Oh, is, it like, um, is that, that's he's, normal. That's, that's normal. It. That's his normal <laughs> hairstyle. Um, and that's a very normal type of interaction that he would have with Dave. Usually I'm playing a little more of one where you can kind of understand what's going on because usually the thing that would happen would be he would ramble and ramble and then just become completely unhinged uh -huh. and rant and rave. And it was always great. And that was just like one of those weird things from late night television in the early 80s. So when I heard his voice here as as Ruck, I thought, oh, okay, we're, this is this is cool. This is cool. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't have much to do as Ruck, but he yeah. does it well. So 
love Brother Theodore. Love seeing him in the credits here. Okay, I have one more funny clip I want to play you from the movie as you fill while I cue it up. Um, this is bringing this movie into the now, Chris. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'm about to blow your mind, and I'm about to reference Marie Kondo again <laughs> in the podcast um, for, I think, the third taping in a row. Yes. Um, let me see if I have the right clip here. I will keep nothing near me that does not make me happy. There you have it, folks. Marie Kondo stole her whole act from King Haggard in The Last Unicorn. That is, that blew my mind. I will have nothing near me that does not bring me joy and make me happy. Yeah. She got her whole act from this. Yeah. That's why he's a very sympathetic villain as far as villains go. Well, I don't know if he's sympathetic, but I think what's interesting about him, to take him seriously for a moment, is he's not cartoonishly villainous. I guess that's more He's wounded, and he's sort of, he's humanity writ large, right? He's sort of- he, as I've referenced before, my friend Raf's um, analogy, would you rather live in the castle of cold splendor or the cottage of contentment? He lives in the castle of cold splendor. Yeah. He's had everything and he's left unamused by anything. Yeah. He's collected. And desperate the, for some kind desperate of Desperate for some feeling. stimulation yes. or feeling, man. He can't feel. And ultimately, the only thing he does have, and this is one of, again, like it was mind blowing to both see and to read the idea that what, you know, spoiler- for the last unicorn. So where are all the unicorns? They live in the sea. Yeah. And they are the white tips of the waves. Amazing. Like the animation of that scene, Incredible. which was very evocative in the book, but to see it actually yeah. executed here, it was gorgeous. And the bull, the design of the bull was terrifying. Well, the Japanese wave reference is obviously, you know, that brilliant, iconic print mm-hmm. of Japanese waves. Like mm-hmm. that's referenced in the- the animation here for the unicorn. Um, but yeah, the animation in the movie is fantastic. I, lo- I I so vastly prefer this kind of animation to most modern animation, even mm-hmm. though, as we talked about in our Spider-Verse podcast, like it can go to interesting and fascinating places. But this kind of hand-drawn, background, character design-oriented animation with real artistry and thought, yeah, it's for kids, but not really. But I agree with you. I had the same thought when watching it. You could see the effort that went into it. Another great scene when Molly Grew first sees the unicorn. Mm -hmm. Her character has such sadness and pain at never having seen a unicorn until her supposedly advanced age in the film. (laughs) Of like 35. Yeah, and it's this sadness and love that she's feeling, this childhood wish and ambition to have seen something as wonderful as a unicorn. And the unicorn is kind of like nuzzling her head and sort of coming in for the the love that Molly Grew is sort of feeling, but manifesting as anger. It was a very real moment. Yeah. And there's a bunch of moments in the movie like that um, where the emotions are very real. And, and complicated. Complicated. And, especially and not, for something for, yeah. for children. Yeah. It says something so nice about directors and about the writer that there is no condescension, that there is no. a trust that the children can understand that there are yeah. things that are difficult, that there is nuance, that things are not... Easy, and again, that's that's very much a theme for the book and the film itself. We talked about Schmendrick's conjuring of Robin Hood. Yes, uh, yeah, that was that great. That myth that that Captain Cundy and his merry band. Uh, that was yeah. a really funny, great scene to sort of watch, and then to see the difference between what you want to be in the legends you tell yourselves mm-hmm. versus the truth. It's a pretty complex. It is, and of course, that's all that growing up is learning that difficulty that everything you thought was true, everything you've been told is. 
kind of true, maybe, at yeah. most. But it's never as, as simple as they told you. It doesn't have so much in common with, like, the Roald Dahl novels and stories that I love, both as a child and now. But, you know, in the Roald Dahl universe, the adults are always the ones who fuck everything up. Yeah. Or are sort of wrong. Most most adults. And then there's, there's, there's always, like, a key adult, like, in my favorite book of all time, Danny, Champion of the World. The father is an amazing character who acts unadult-like mm-hmm. and, in doing so, proves to us, the reader, and to Danny, his son – his value and worth as a trusted figure of love. Whereas in this movie, it's not a movie where adults have lost something that kids have in a childlike magical innocence. It's more about humanity and about searching for where you belong and about some very deep human elements of collecting and hoarding and wanting for one's self and in doing so closing off from from other people. Uh, And King Haggard... You know, to, it's like, I think we get the point of the name. <laughs> what? I don't, you sorry. don't get it? You didn't miss, you miss that part? You know, he's just the ultimate embodiment of that. And even yeah. though he's the bad guy, it's very hard not to have feelings for him as yes. he's going through the end part of the film. And his character design is so interesting and layered. You know, he's got protective armor on, even though he's not under assault by anything other than his own devices. His conception of what a king should be, yeah. what it means to rule. It was interesting to read some of the history of these Japanese animation companies in the 70s and the 80s. And so there were a couple major ones. And this film was animated by uh, Topcraft, mm-hmm. which was a 1972 offshoot of Toy Animation, T-O-E-I. I don't know how you pronounce that. Me neither. But many top craft staffers, I'm reading from Wikipedia, including the studio's founder, Toru Hara, would go on to join the successor studio, Ghibli, and work on Heo Miyazaki's feature films. And there's real continuity between these two things that I would never put together, Rankin-Bass and Miyazaki. Miyazaki is someone who we kind of give credit for animated feature for children, yes, but with real artistry and adult themes layered throughout. But in here, we can see that that was something that existed certainly uh, at least as far back as this film. Yep. But I think I'd be interested to know more about it, to know more about how they ended up going to Japan, whether it just started as sort of a financial reality. And then in doing so, they got something back that was so much more artful in execution. And I want to read more about Peter S. Beagle. What are the other what are the other novels in the you Peter know, S. Beagle canon? Uh, I didn't <laughs> I hadn't heard of any of the other ones. And um, he. Still They're alive. Still alive, but and actually not even that old. He wrote this when he's he was, 79. I think, about uh, late 20s. He's, he's won the Hugo. He's won the Nebula. Those are the big ones. For a book he wrote, which was sort of a sequel to this, about th- uh, 2006, I think they said. After he wrote the screenplay for this and started doing more screenplays, he stopped doing prose for the most part, mm. but did come back. I, um, I think he might have come back before but he did do sort of a spiritual sequel to this to this book, which, like you said, won mm. the two biggest uh, fantasy awards. Well, anything else? Any other thoughts that you have on The Last Unicorn? Just that I was so surprised and, and moved by how good it was, both as a book and as a piece of animation. I actually did want to read just a couple quotes from another essay that I liked. From The Atlantic, Yosef Lindel, in November, actually of just last year. A fantasy land whose denizens require illusion to see the magic in front of them is one where magic is largely forgotten. And perhaps all of this is why The Last Unicorn is a fantasy for these times. The novel doesn't take place in a believable alternate world with clear rules and boundaries 
stories, but in a messy one more akin to ours. It's not epic fantasy, but applied fantasy, which is to say readers aren't supposed to get lost in its invented world. We are supposed to import its lessons into our world. In this uncertain age, when truth and falsehood are just rapidly converging talking points on the same blurry continuum, and wishful thinking is hopelessly mixed up with reality, The Last Unicorn urges audiences to do the things that need doing anyway, muddling through as best we can. Interesting. It's about the the novel, but you see it in the film as well. The things that are questionable or muddy or strange, that's really what the the story is about. And, you know, my daughter loved it, even though she was terrified. Um, I think it's because the scary stuff is actually scary. Yes. I mean, it's scary to me. The Red Bull is a churning fireball of serious size yeah. and nefarious intent. I'm torn with the Mia Farrow thing in that it's just her her voiceover is the one that I wish wasn't quite so breathy and flighty and ethereal in the most stereotypical unicorn way. I thought yeah. it, and I don't know if in the book the, the unicorn has internal dialogue or thought. Yes, the unicorn did speak. The impression that I got of the unicorn's personality was that it was a little bit more haughty mm-hmm. and took itself a bit more seriously and actually was a bit dismissive of humans, mm. which was a big change, though, when when she became a human. And again, that, that seemed part of the continuum of what she was losing because you don't see that much of her as the unicorn before the change. You don't get that sense of her personality. But I think the breathiness that you were talking about, to me, I chalked that up to commenting on the fairy tale convention of the princess. Yeah. But you may be right. They, they might, you know, that could just be me filling in those blanks. I guess what I'm reacting to is there's so many other th- unexpected things that this movie does. For example, in fact, Prince Lear is pretty useless and he's caught up in trying to be something that he really isn't. But it's the unicorn who saves the other, her fellow unicorns and, and thus the movie, mm-hmm. which is such a cool twist and unexpected. But it would have been cooler if her voiceover and her characterization of the unicorn was a little less breathy, a little less mm-hmm. overly emotional at all times. It sort of was a kind of a stereotype. Yeah. However, when my daughter was watching it, and I guess it's really most important that this movie works for her, not yes. for me. Um that's what she, she she's all in. I mean, yeah. that's the way a unicorn talks in her mind. So yeah. I guess there's no, and if I told you how many unicorns we had in our house, Chris, it would be, <laughs> it's, we have a unicorn alley in our home, an alley of unicorns. Yeah. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them, as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Um, Chris, are you ready to move on to Rants and Raves? Yes. Anyway, um, why don't you start us off, Chris? Do you have any rants or raves? And let's, I don't want to police you, Chris, but please let them not be as esoteric as your Warhol at the Whitney, the <sighs> two esoteric. <laughs> Is that what it's going to be again? What? Well, I didn't go, last week it was because I didn't go to an art. Are we still interested? I mean, Warhol, seriously, enough. It was really good. Come on. It was really good. Going to art galleries, like week in and week out, that's every rave you have is like, I went to this art gallery. That's all you do is go to art galleries? I mean, and edit this podcast. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm, I finished reading uh, that Insert book. name of esoteric novel here. Say, I'm reading The Shining. Ooh. Because I hadn't read any uh, Stephen wow, King. Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, and it is good. Talk about different from the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Although I, 
I mean, I would contend he captured some essential nature of the novel without putting the novel on the screen. I, and that's what he would contend. Stephen <laughs> King, however, Stephen King would, would not. Contend. He would say, no. oh, no, this TV Which movie is so weird to with me. Stephen Weber really caught my book <laughs> much better. Sorry, Stephen Weber. Listen, I'm sure it's great. Yeah. Well, no, you know it's not. Mm. The I Stephen mean, Weber Stephen TV seemed, movie version? Stephen King seemed to like it. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> Um, well, Chris, one of my raves, as you know, if you follow the podcast on Instagram, it was taken over uh, over the last five days with fascinating poster art from the films of Jean-Pierre Melville. I don't know how I got onto this. I'm just a guy who likes to watch a movie now and again. Um, so I was home, and you know that time when you're kind of surfing through Netflix and you're surfing through Amazon Prime and you're looking for something. You don't want to watch something contemporary per se. You want to watch something good, but you don't want to watch something too artful because you've had a long day. And you're looking for something that just sort of appeals to you with artful simplicity and directness. And boom, somehow through whatever I was looking at and going to, customers also watched, it got suggested to me that I watch Les Samurai from Jean-Pierre Melville, which stars uh, Elaine Delon. And I'd heard of it. I'd passed it by many times before for whatever reason I was ready for it. And I, I, I sat and watched the whole thing. And my God, is it brilliant. Of course, it's yeah. brilliant. One of the most brilliant films ever made. And the influence of it was staggering. And I was laughing because so many movies that I love come directly from this movie. Yeah. And from Michael Mann and Heat and Thief to The Silence, the the belted trench coats, uh, the code, the alienation. Yeah. The next night I watched Le Cercle Rouge. Yes. Then I watched Army of Shadows. Yes. I watched, uh, I can't know, I don't know what is it in French, the Second Wind one. That's one that I, ha- that I haven't seen. That one seen. is great. It's weird, but great. He is so great because he is arty and wonderful in the sense that he's very good filmmaker, but he's also, he's making- great crime yeah, movies. he's populist. He's populist in that way. And that's that's why his movies are so exciting and so good. And he works with great actors. Like I love oh Alain Delon. And my favorite is uh, Lino Ventura. Oh my God, he's amazing. Uh, he is so- But these sort of seem to me in my reading to form the four canonical Jean-Pierre Melville crime kind of films. Yeah. It's hard to think of other films that, not just in the style of the dress and all that, but in the methodical- approach to the workmanlike concerns of the criminals and the crimes that they commit. He shows you methodically how they do it. And in doing so, you come to understand the men underneath the masks committing the crimes. But of course, no one, crime does not pay in these films. Yeah. Ever. And that essential kind of thing where for, you know, two hours, you're, you're, you're on the side of these guys. Like, even as they do terrible things, you're, you're just put into a, an effortless French new wave world where, uh, the cops are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. Yeah. And you want them to get away with it. But in the end, they don't. Yeah. What else should I watch now that I'm going down this rabbit hole? Uh, you mentioned Bob Flambert, Rafifi, another classic of the form, uh, particularly when you talk about like what goes into the heist stuff. Yes but it has like some, a very particular set. Is that, a, hit, is that a Melville or is that someone else? I don't else? think it's Melville. I think that's somebody else. Okay. Um, For anyone who's a fan of France, French cinema, uh, crime, crime cinema, and you haven't, if you're like me and you haven't, somehow you made it this far without really watching the films of Jean-Pierre Melville, I highly recommend watching them. And I would, I would start with Les Samurai. My other filmic rave, uh, 
and we were going to do them, but we're not going to do them. So I'm going to, I think we should talk about them here. The Firefest documentaries. Have you seen the Firefest documentaries? Yeah, I actually stayed up late last <laughs> night after watching the last unicorn, after finishing Why, the book. Why, did you knew that it was going to come up? Well, because I was fascinated. I had seen the first one over the weekend yeah. and uh, then watched the blowjob one last night. Okay, speaking of which, um, I'm going to play the soundbite right now <laughs> that to me, this is the defining filmic documentary soundbite of the millennial generation. Well, Billy called me. I'm going to speak completely, um, you know, this won't go that far, I'm sure. But Billy called and said, Andy, we need you to take one big thing for the team. You're our wonderful gay leader, and we need you to go down. Will you suck dick to fix this water problem? And I said, Billy, what? He said, Andy, if you will go down and suck Cunningham's dick, who's the head of customs, and get him to clear all of the containers with water, you will save this festival. And I literally drove home, took a shower, I, I, I drank some mouthwash. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really, and I got into my car to drive across the island to take one for the team. And I got to his office fully prepared to suck his dick. But he couldn't have been nicer. And he's like, Andy, listen, I will release all the water. I will let you serve it. But I want to be, be one of the first people to be paid this import fee. And I said, okay, great. And I got back and I had all the water that we needed. <laughs> So much has been written about, talked about, about that specific quote. And it, I, I personally am a bigger fan. I think the Hulu documentary is, has a little more context and nuance than the Netflix documentary. However, it, how, whatever I can say about it, the Netflix documentary contains that soundbite. Yeah. And for all time, that is a classic Absolutely. I have to admit, I was a little bit disappointed when he was like, all right, the guy couldn't have been nice. He's like, nah. <laughs> Luckily, I had watched the film and hadn't had it spoiled for me the way we may have just spoiled that <laughs> anecdote for anyone who hasn't yet watched it. But again, two weeks, yeah, you're on your own. It. Forget it. Okay. I hadn't heard of this moment when I watched the documentary. So my jaw literally dropped. I could not believe what I was hearing and seeing when he started telling the story. And I'm so glad that I got to experience that way. Yeah. And immediately you start thinking, why would this guy tell this story? He even says at the beginning, like, well, this won't go far. Is he joking? Is that a joke? He's got to be kidding. I mean, he's just willing to tell the God's honest truth about how into this he was and how far he was willing to go. I mean, I suppose if it had unfolded the way that it did. He'd be I a really, hero? No, I think he would not have told the story. But oh, think, yeah. At this point, he's able to like, oh, we can laugh about it now because he comes out in some ways, okay, maybe he is somewhat ashamed. And the customs guy, who he uses by name. Uh, yeah, which is probably a crime, isn't it? Couldn't you? Well, it can't look, be the guy's real name. Either that or the way the, that I was the thinking, story implies that Billy was told by the customs guy or someone who knows see, him. To me, this is what I get from it. Billy McFarlane and these beer, mm -hmm. uh, beer fatted bros mm -hmm. are like, look, we know one gay guy. Yeah. Let the gay guy suck his dick. Like the assumption the that currency. that was that it had more to do with them. The very fact that they would leverage that so quickly without any sort of reason or thinking about it. Both films to me represent what's 
a specific aspect of what's wrong with our culture and society at the moment we're living in, the fraud and the crime. I agree that I think I also liked the Hulu one a little bit better. In some ways, it's a commentary of our time, but it's also in some ways a commentary like it's not the first time we've had con mans and crooks. It's just it's finding the overlap of how that manifests in certain other tendencies. And I think the Hulu documentary did a good job of linking those two of here's this kind of crook recognizing influencer culture and the sort of... um flim flam that's part of social media in general and putting the two together. They're both indispensable. I mean, you just have to watch them. I don't know why the Netflix documentary does not reference the fact that Jerry Media is an executive producer and partial funder of the own documentary, which presents a very Jerry-friendly version of events. In the Netflix documentary, the guy from Jerry Media thought, I just thought he was he was giving such a self-serving version of events. Mm -hmm. And um, I find those guys uh, shady and untrustworthy. And I just don't buy that they were somehow so shocked and didn't know, hey, we were just paid to do the social, man. Mm-hmm. Don't look at us. Especially and, because the whole thing was built on social. And the same thing for Andy King, by the way. I'm sorry, Andy. You were there when his stupid credit card scam fell apart. He he worked on that too. Anyway, you have to watch these. If you haven't seen them, there was a little fight going on on my Facebook page because I posted Hulu Firefest documentary greater than the Netflix Fire. And some people were like, totally disagree. Wholeheartedly, like there are two distinct camps. I think the Andy King anecdote might be the most significant reason why. Yeah, some people like- just say, listen. <laughs> you, you, I didn't that- hear any blowjobs in the first one. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect segue to our first headlines. Our first headline, Firefest's Andy King says he doesn't, quote, want to be known as the blowjob king of the world. I'm here to break it to him, Chris. Talk about uh, something attaching to your legacy. Well, found a university or something. I don't know what else to tell you. He can, there's nothing he can ever do. You now have attached this bizarre thing to your name for all time. I get that he's saying in one sense how far he was willing to go, how much Kool-Aid he drank, that, that he even contemplated doing it. But you know what? In the world we live in, this is going to be great for him. I was about right? to say, Is like, he going to parlay? The, don't I tell me there's a parlay going on. You know, I don't know the man. I don't know his life. But I can't imagine that he's like, I'm, what? People are talking oh, about Oh, he it. loves it, I'm sure. That's what I mean. So, yeah. so I'm, not gonna, I'm not too, too yeah, worried Yeah, maybe we're him. playing into his master plan. Okay, my next headline, Chris, um, comes from, is also about how stupid our culture is and can be. <laughs> It's a running theme. Um, This is a running theme. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. doesn't know what SNL stands for. (laughs) So Donald Donald Trump Jr., who famously criticizes on Twitter any sort of what they would consider to be the fake news media, the liberal news media attacks on his father, his family. So Donald Trump Jr. tried to be funny, and it predictably went horribly wrong. He tweeted, it's almost like a funny version of an SNL skit. And he used the ampersand as if the N in SNL. Saturday Night Live, SNL, stood for and. And all you can do is stand agog and horrified. Yeah. Does he still have a beard? No. Because I think he seemed to have gotten even more, like, dumb when he grew his beard. Like, I wonder if something happened or if he thinks he's, like, Oh, Don Jr. went wild and crazy? That would be great. I need another name for this category of headline. This is... A category of headline, which just unto itself, we don't need to discuss the story per se. It just, 
It's that this headline exists. The headline, here's everything you need to know about Ted Bundy's daughter. Cosmopolitan takes the existence of a Ted Bundy Netflix Netflix series to posit, here's everything you need to know about Ted Bundy's daughter for that cocktail party chatter after work at the publishing house. You know what I need to know about Ted Bundy's daughter? Nothing. Nothing. I've come this far without knowing anything I don't want to know anything about it. I read the whole article so you all don't have to. Everything you need to know is... She had nothing to do with what happened, and she wants to be left the fuck alone. My last one, just to end on a lighter note. Here's the weird reason Jay Leno is thanked in the credits of Mary Poppins Returns. This is a story about the power of the internet, where someone with a sensibility much like mine, I must say. So somebody who liked the movie, like Mary Poppins Returns. Someone who loved Mary Poppins Returns enough to stick around all the way through the end credits, which I'm an end credit sticker around her, because I always think there's going to be a little surprise at the end, even though Marvel has ruined that. Um, by actually doing it? Well, by like now they own that. Okay. Sheeple, wake up. Marvel is force feeding you a commercial. It's not a funny, clever little bit from something you're going to experience. It's cool. No. However, what Mary Poppins yeah. offers the person who sticks around <laughs> is that somebody stuck around and noticed that in the special thanks category, mm-hmm. Jay Leno was thanked, which is an incongruous person to thank in the Mary Poppins Returns I'm credits. going to guess Emily Blunt had been his personal assistant at one point. No, but so Julie Klausner on her podcast pondered this question. And, you know, in the world of like better known podcasts than ours, how it's like a tight little community and all the celebrities like read it. And then they're like, oh, (laughs) Julie said this on her podcast. So I, Lin-Manuel, myself are going to chime in on Twitter and provide the answer, thus closing the loop on our celebrity exclusiveness. We're going to get there. You know what? We're going to get there. No, we don't want to get there. When we get the opportunity to get there, we're going to turn it down. That's right. Okay. We are refuseniks here. Yep. However, I'm glad that Lynn did chime in and give the answer because this is the kind of thing that I would wonder about. Lynn Manuel said, wait, Julie Klausner, I asked about this when I saw it. Apparently, there is a car sound effect from the 1930s that they could not replicate. And someone realized Jay Leno had the actual car they needed to record the sound effect. There's your answer. Wow. So, you know, Jay Leno is like has a huge aircraft carrier thing full of cars. Right. And has every obscure car. Hanger. Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> Carrier. Carrier. He does yeah. not have well, as far as we know. Yeah, who knows? As far as we know. Yeah. That's what Jay did. When people invite us to be on their podcast, we're gonna say no. Unless it's good for us. <laughs> let's not <laughs> let's not be overly hasty. <laughs> Didn't you learn anything from the last unicorn? It doesn't have to be so black and white. Until we can do better as an entertainment consuming society, we don't deserve better. I don't no. think we're that bad. I compared guess compared to where we've been. The dichotomy here is that you can have hope and I can be an embittered. That's true solitary figure of sadness and someone who would befriend ducks at a yeah. pond <laughs> See those jerks. I'm trying to like feed them. Some, See those jerks. We don't need them. Who needs them? Who needs them? They're Sell all. Sell out. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy, Chris. Save me. I'm trying. <laughs> I, it's only Add that so to your list of full-time jobs you have in addition to working, <laughs> editing the podcast. And going to all those art galleries. Going to art galleries. <laughs> all the time. Making French press coffee. <gasps> Applying, Sorry, I just had a flashback. Applying unguent and salve to your French press coffee wounds. In case you're wondering, I did go to the doctor again. Again? Everything, Why? Just a checkup. They oh my said, God, you have to go for a checkup? I mean, you're okay, Chris. They told me to go to a plastic surgeon to make sure that it was, did not need a <laughs> Did they really graft. tell you that? Yeah. Are you well, fucking no, serious? No, they said to go to a plastic surgeon just to make sure it was healing okay. And I did. And yeah. is it? It's like, yeah, what the hell are you wasting my time for? Wow. Um, Well, Chris, what are you going to take us out on this week? Uh, I was going to take us out on, actually, I think this theme that we talked about, the difference between reality and the fairy tale, Mm -hmm. one of America's most, um, let's say, 
potent mythologies. Potent has, potions for 100, potent please. mythologies Alex. has to do with its relationship to the West and the frontier. Hmm, sounds intriguing. Joey, there's no living with, with a killing. There's no going back from one. Right and wrong, it's a brand. A brand sticks. There's no going back. Now you run on home to your mother and tell her, tell her everything's all right. And there aren't any more guns in the valley. Jay. It's bloody. You're hurt. I'm all right, Joey. You go home to your mother and your father and grow up to be strong straight. Joey, take care of them. Both of them. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.